Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on March 7, 2019, Let's Learn a Tad About Substance, an EU and OECD update. The panelists for the webcast were Doug McConey, a partner in PwC's International Tax Services Group and National Practice Leader, Yoni Guther and Martin Muscant, both principals in the International Tax Services Group, and David Ernick, a principal in PwC's Transfer Pricing Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the EU Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive, including the exit tax provisions, the hybrid rules, and some country-specific implementation examples, and an overview of the new OECD substance requirements. Have a listen. So maybe we'll continue to the exit taxes. Um, so also 81 introduced exit taxes, and Martin uh, already referenced. Basically, an exit tax um, beco- comes into effect when a company transfers either its assets or its tax residence from one uh, country to another country, and the value that is created while that company was resident, um, let's say, in, in country A, country A would now um, subject that uh, capital gain uh, to tax at the moment of, uh, of exit, even though the actual capital gain has not arisen uh, at that time. And interestingly enough, I think um, over the last years, there was a lot of debate and, and EU case law on whether exit taxes actually were appropriate and, and whether they infringed uh, EU law. But by uh, the fact that it's now included in the directive, um, we can pretty much say that it is appropriate and it's actually required. So many, many states already had uh, exit taxes in place. Uh, some of that, uh, those may need to be changed um, as a result of the wording of the, uh, of the directive. Um, but very high level, as I said, um, transfers of assets uh, to another member state or third country, migration of tax residency or transfer of a permanent establishment could all be within scope of uh, an exit tax. And again, like all the other provisions, there are specific uh, exceptions available. So one is um, if the transfer was temporary. So if the assets are transferred back within a 12-month period, then the exit tax does not apply. And that, for example, could be applicable in situations where assets are transferred to post-collateral or to meet certain capital requirements. Um, And then there's also... Um, the, the, they make it a li- the implementation a little bit more practical for taxpayers, whereby if you're subject to an exit tax, you have the option to pay the exit tax in installments of, uh, of five years. But in that case, um, you, you may be due, uh, you may be interest due, and you also may need to make a guarantee to the member state. Yeah, the hope or question that some of us had as far as intra-EU transfers and whether those may be non-taxable under the existing EU legislation obviously is is not the intended case. So we'll see how various jurisdictions implement that because that one is effective 2020. Yeah. So then the hybrid rules, which is basically the most complex part of the uh, of the ATET uh, 1 and 2. So there's no way we can address that in, in two or three minutes, but very high level. ATET 1 um, adopted hi- hybrid mismatch m- rules already. Uh, and then ATA 2 expanded the scope of the hybrid mismatch rules to also include payments to uh, non-EU countries and just broaden the scope in, in generally. And when do you have uh, when do you have a hybrid mismatch? Well, first of all, the, the hybrid mismatch in general really results um, uh, as a result of a, ca- a change in characterization of a payment. So, for example, in one country, 
um, a, an instrument is treated as debt, and in another country that same payment is, is considered to be a dividend payment, for example. Or if you have a hybrid entity, where an entity in one country is considered to be a partnership, and in another country it's considered to be a corporation. And then as a, if, if as a result of that difference in characterization, uh, the result is either a double deduction or a deduction and no inclusion, in that case you'll have a, a hybrid mismatch. Um, so again, when the, for, like, for example, uh, a deduction, no inclusion, if a country uh, makes an interest payment, it's deductible for, for that country, it receives, uh, the country that receives the interest income treats that as a dividend income and it may be um, exempt under the uh, participation exemption in that country, um, you have a deduction, no inclusion, and um, the deduction may be disallowed. Um, you only have a hybrid mismatch if, if, if it's part, if it's between related parties, um, so there needs to be a 25% uh, relation, or if it's a structured arrangement, um, and that's the, determined by facts and circumstances, but for example, if it's clear that uh, the hybrid mismatch advantage was part, like was one of the reasons why that structure was, was adopted, then it's clear that that's a structured arrangement. As I said, we probably need another webcast right. to discuss this. It's, it's much more complicated than I just highlight, but I think the key takeaway is that if you have uh, hybrid entities or hybrid instruments um, in your structure, you will have to review this um, because uh, there's a significant chance that you may uh, lose your deduction. Yeah, and these rules were applicable for intra-EU payments effective after 2019, so or after 2018, so currently this year, and then the rules for payments outside the EU are going to be applicable for payments after 2020. Yeah. We've already seen the UK has adopted their rules. We're still anxiously awaiting a number of the other jurisdictions. Obviously, the US, not part of the EU, has entered into the game with 267 yeah. CAFE, which has been the, the subject of a prior re tax readiness webcast, and we don't have time for that either. But <laughs> it will certainly be interesting to see how the rest of the EU responds, both to the UK rules and the US rules. So the next section that we're going to talk about is some country-specific implementation. I already alluded to the UK yep. on the hybrid rules, Martin, so we're not going to dive into those or 267 CAP A. No. Um, but uh, tell us what's going on in, in, in Europe. I'm very interested to see, is everybody, is everybody going to meet their, their timelines and deadlines? But what are we seeing so far? Uh, um, oh, to, to answer that quickly, Adak, is um, because some of the rules already should have been implemented. And we know that a country like Ireland did not implement their interest limitation rules. They're already late and already the commission uh, stood up against Ireland and, and, and pushing them forward uh, to change those rules quickly. Um, what you see on the slide is, is actually... Um, uh, I wanted to make it a traffic light, but it's all red more or less. So I don't know whether it's 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 a great it's a great crossing. Um, red stands for where we expect or where countries should have changed some of the important rules, like hybrid CFC and, and the interest limitation rules. And the takeaway from this slide is is what you can see is that almost all countries needed to amend um, the rules. Only where you see the UK three green dots. So. Uh, they are ready to leave the, the European Union because they are um, compliant with the rules, more or less. So, um, but all the other countries really needed, uh, needed or will need to change depending on the timing of the rule, uh, like the hybrids, um, to change their rules. So again, uh, it shows that you cannot rely on the situation as it was. And what you will see, and we will dive into two examples indeed, um, that 
take the interest limitation one, and let's take France as an example. Yeah, and maybe before we just we move on to, to France, Martin, just the, the, I think the comments with France CFC, the reason we see the green dots, you know, is, is that they've already, I think as you had mentioned, yeah. have already adopted. But Germany, for example, their EBITDA rule has been around for, for quite right. some time. And so that's why I think we assume that there will not, and they have publicly said that there won't be any changes. But all of the other red dots, I think it's generally our interpretation yeah. that those rules do not appear to, to comply, although I don't think that's necessarily definitive. Obviously, all of this stuff is up for interpretation, and certainly each jurisdiction is going to have to determine whether they think that they are currently compliant. So it, let's, move, uh, let's move to France. Yeah, and, and France is a country where we expected that they wouldn't change their interest limitation rules. If you, this, this is an overview of the old test you have to pass to get an interest deduction in France. It, it's quite complicated um, exercise, it's seven tests. We all worked on numerous uh, clients with, with French uh, investments, so we all know how difficult it is to, to get that interest limitation. And one of the rules, and it was test number three, um, they already had an EBITDA rule and a thin capitalization rule. And the directive then allows you at least to postpone the rule, or at least, and, and you can check, am I in line yet or no? Um, but what we see uh, happening in France, and uh, there was a red dot on the previous slide, is that they decided to change the rules. So what did they do? Um, and that's perhaps good news. And it's always good to have some good news, because they repealed three of the tests on the screen. It's test number, I will just say the numbers, three, four, and six. So they repealed the ThinkCap rules, they repealed the control and influence test, and they repealed a haircut on the uh, interest you could, you could deduct. But now the bad news. And perhaps let's move on to the, to the next slide. Because what they did is, and I apologize for the small letters, and, and, but I will walk you through in, an, uh, um, in a nutshell, um, is that they brought back ThinkCap rules, they brought back an uh, EBITDA rule, and they brought back the, 70, uh, the, the, the haircut rule. Um, how does it work? And I will just, and the reason why I give you this example is to show you how complicated things have become. Um, if you start with a French company or French fiscal group and tax consolidation, um, the first question you have to ask yourself if you pass already the other tests like arm's length standard of the interest rate and, and are you able to serve the debt is, is your company thin capitalized? So it's a test of related party in um, debt versus the equity. Let's start with the easy exercise. So let's assume you are not uh, thinly capitalized, so you're below that 1.5 ratio. Then you're allowed to go to the rule that Yoni just explained, and you're allowed to deduct a higher amount of 30% of your tax EBITDA, or 3 million euros. And then what the French government even uh, uh, did on top of that, they gave you an additional deduction even. So uh, you can then go and test whether or not you group, uh, so your total worldwide group ratio is um, even worse than your French group, saying and mean that you're more leveraged worldwide than, than in France, then you're allowed to, on top of that 30% EBITDA, deduct 75% of the uh, financial expenses that you were not allowed to deduct based on, on the 30% EBITDA rule. Um, so um, the group escape is a bit different than was proposed or is more strict than proposed in the um, uh, directive here, because there the group escape was, if you're thinly capitalized, you can just apply that ratio. Here you have to, it's an 
layer on of an, on a 30% EBITDA cap to see whether or not you can deduct some extra amount of interest, but it's never the 100% amount. Um, you are thinly capitalized, so your ratio is worse than uh, is higher than at 1.5. Then you have to apply a different safe harbor rule because it was equity versus assets. Here it's in debt equity ratio. The good news is if you are again uh, you meet that group escape. You can go back to, I would say, the good side, and you can deduct 30% uh, of the rule uh, of your interest, of your 30% of your EBITDA's interest. But if you are not meeting that group escape, you enter into two different baskets. You have a good basket and a bad basket. The good basket is you take um, your French equity, 1.5 times your French equity, you deduct your third-party debt. If you have then room left, that's interest, which is I call the good intercompany interest that you can deduct based on the 30% EBITDA rule. The remaining interest falls into the bad basket, and then you can only deduct 10% of your EBITDA on top of that with limited carry forward. Um, and I said it, I think, with taking only two breaths, so uh, totally understand that. <laughs> it, I went way too fast, but this is really the message I want to give. It has not become easier. And it's not also to, it's good to understand that this rule does not replace all the rules um, of the interest limitation rules in France. It replaces some of the rules. So you still have to test the three other rules. Yeah, that is certainly a common theme of our tax readiness webcast is complexity. Yeah. And not unique to the U.S. With, with our proposed rules, particularly with 163J, but we're also seeing that across the globe. And so just cost of compliance and the need to be able to do this and uncertainty certainly becomes very challenging. Yes. Um, Quickly on the Netherlands, also they in, uh, implemented the interest limitation rules. It, I wanted to highlight here that they took a much lower threshold on the minimum rule, so it's only 1 million instead of 3 million, uh, no grandfather of existing rules, and they only abolished part of the, the rules. I want to address quickly the CFC rules, uh, but there were already mentioned that why is this so interesting? The Netherlands took a hybrid approach. Mm. Uh, they implemented, they said, we both have option B, so the transfer pricing approach, and we do an option A for specific circumstances. If you have a low tax, low substance um, CFC, um, or you're blacklisted. And I wanted to raise that because they will use the same criteria for payments to tax havens, which Dave, you will, you will address mm -hmm. in a second. Um, also here it's important that the CFC rules did not replace the participation exemption rules. Still, you have to meet those conditions. So even if you think you're fine on the CFC, you still have to meet participation exemption. And if you're fine on CFC, my takeaway is, what does it mean for MLI? Because you may not have a transfer pricing adjustment because you have a lack of significant people functioning in the Netherlands, but what does that mean from an MLI perspective, a principal purpose test for treaty abuse? So Yoni, I think you know one of the things that I've learned throughout this journey that has been ATAD is that spent all these time kind of learning and memorizing these rules, and then Martin just gave a great example of jurisdictions that are adopting hybrid approaches or tweaking the hybrid rules like we've seen even with the UK, uh, effectively not following the OECD, OECD principles or the OECD recommendations. Is there any chance that we could see some uniformity in how countries adopt these rules or you know, what, are, what, are you, what are some of your predictions in that respect? <laughs> Well, it's difficult to predict, but I think based on what we already know, countries are, are still 
the, the directives are all based on trying to align the, the, the tax systems in these countries. But what we've seen that countries are trying to find kind of the borders, uh, especially there's, there's still some competition happening. If you look at, for example, the holding and finance locations like Ireland, the Netherlands and Luxembourg, specifically, for example, with the interest limit, limitation rules, um, Ireland tried to push out the, uh, in the implementation date. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of questions whether that actually were, whether there were valid reasons to do that. Uh, and in Ireland, uh, there's also this whole discussion on, uh, for example, for investments in distressed debt assets, whether the gain on that debt is considered to be interest income. And if that's interest income, it's really good for the rule. If it's not interest income, it's not good for the rule. So countries are trying to have a different interpretation of that rule as well. And I think we'll continue to see that across um, all the different uh, elements. Yeah, and I'm fascinated to see that as particularly the jurisdictions that haven't adopted some of these rules, particularly with respect to the CFC rules, as well as the EBITDA or the interest expense limitations, how the new U.S. rules could influence that. And whether guilty or, for example, the U.S. rule or some of our 163J or our 267 Cap A hybrid rules could impact how those foreign jurisdictions end up adopting those rules and if they may borrow from some of the concepts in the U.S. But time will tell. All right. So let's move now to the OECD. And there's been a lot of noise. And this overlaps, I think, with our discussion on ATAD and particularly the EU, which has been giving a lot of discussion, as well as the OECD, on substance requirements. And so, David, want to turn it over to you to talk about the, the minimum substance requirements that the OECD put forth, as well as what we're seeing in some jurisdictions around the globe. Sure, Doug. So this was a report that came out, I believe, in early November of last year. And I want to spend some time on this because I think people might have missed this. It was kind of a sleeper issue. I know we've all been busy with a lot of tax reform issues, all the regulations coming out, the OECD's other work on digital economy. But this actually has a pretty significant impact and pretty quickly. So what is it we're talking about? And again, just big picture because it's very detailed. But when we think about what we're doing in terms of tax planning, and especially from a U.S. perspective, a lot, a lot of times we'll do some whiteboarding with our clients. And you know, we've got the org chart up there with the boxes. And we want to move the boxes around to have a new structure. And I think from a U.S. perspective, a lot of times we don't think about, well, does that entity have substance? Or for us, at least it's a lower threshold. We think, well, is there economic substance? meaning do we have a, a business purpose and are there real tax effects to this? This report is talking about substance in a different term, and the actual term they use is substantial activities. And what they're saying is that for entities and jurisdictions that what are what they call no or only nominal tax jurisdictions, you've got to require substantial activities actually be conducted there in order to support the income that's being allocated there in order for that jurisdiction not to be engaging in a harmful tax practice. So the objective, like a lot of what we've seen in BEPS, is to prevent low tax jurisdictions from attracting profits from some mobile activities that aren't commensurate with the actual real economic activity that's, that's being undertaken there. And so what types of mobile activities? These would be things like an IP holding company. It's very easy to move your intangibles around. Um, a financing entity, banking, insurance, things like that, you've got to have some real economic activity going on there. And, and this was work, this is not um, new work, this is from the OECD's Action 5, Preventing Harmful Tax Practices, Preventing Inappropriate Sort of Tax Competition. 
Yeah, and one of the things that I think is very challenging about this, particularly for U.S. multinationals, is with respect, for example, our cost share rules, that the, the structure of the U.S. rules uh, assumes or actually contemplates that that cost share results in those activities that are taking place potentially, for example, in the U.S. back to that holding company or back to that legal entity, I should say. And so this makes things particularly challenged for U.S. multinationals trying to comply with some of these economic substance rules. And it's just inherently different, I think, than what the OECD would anticipate. That's exactly right, Doug. That's a great point. And again, very much nothing new here, kind of a variation on a theme. We saw this from the OECD with their transfer pricing work as part of BEP saying, we're not as concerned with your contractual allocations of risk or your legal ownership of intangibles. We want to know where the people are located. But again, raising that conflict that traditionally in the U.S., we've respected contracts much more than other countries. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank you.